Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School Podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Interim Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today, we have a really interesting one. A group of 14 students with the unofficial moniker, the Bumpus Pollinator Association of Law Students, or BPALS for short, and Professor Keith Harakawa teamed up with the Center for Biological Diversity to file a petition with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back on February 1st to add the American American bumblebee to the endangered species list through the Endangered Species Act of 1973. Well, we have Professor Hirakawa and Claire Burke, who is a 3L and president of the Environmental Law Society, here to talk to us about that whole process today. Very interesting stuff. Before we get to them, though, as always, make sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, of course. If you like this podcast, you want to hear previous episodes, you can follow us on any of the major services or on our SoundCloud account. And make sure to check out albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus for all the details about coming to campus during the spring semester. Enough announcements though, let's talk about the American Bumblebee. Back here on the podcast with Professor Keith Hirakawa and Claire Burke. And Professor Hirakawa, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today. My name is Keith Urikawa. I'm a professor of law at Albany Law School. Uh, I've been here since 2009, teaching and researching in areas of uh, environmental law and land use and property, um, some legal theory as well. Before coming here, I had a practice involving uh, environmental law and a lot of land use with local governments, working on smart growth and a lot of habitat protection at the local level. And Claire, if you just let everybody know where you stand here at Albany Law School. Yeah, so my name is Claire Burke. I am a 3L here at Albany Law School, just almost finishing my last semester. And I am also the president of the Environmental Law Society here at the school. Okay, so we've had a lot of interest in this particular project that you've both been working on, and I want to cover some of the mechanics here first of what exactly is the petition that has been filed. So let's start right at the top. Keith, can you walk us through what has been filed, and what the goals of the petition are. Absolutely. So it's great to hear that there's interest in this matter. And I have to say that the law students at Albany Law really took this on with vigor and professionalism and did a really great job advocating on behalf of the American bumblebee. And so what we've done uh, is assembled a petition under the Endangered Species Act and submitted that petition with the Center for Biological Diversity to the Department of Fish and Wildlife, who has jurisdiction over terrestrial species, for listing and protection under the Endangered Species Act. What we noticed is that there has been serious decline in the populations of this pollinator of a critical species for the survival of the planet, for agriculture, uh, among other things. There weren't protections in the law for this species. Um, And so we sought out this particular type of protection really because there was no other alternative. We think about the Endangered Species Act as the, you know, sort of a go-to law uh, when we're in a dire situation, and certainly the bumblebee has gotten to that position. So we filed the petition really for two reasons, I guess. One is for legal protection under the Endangered Species Act to identify habitats and populations of the bumblebee uh, before they're gone and unrecoverable, uh, but also to raise awareness of this problem. One of the things we get out of listing under the Endangered Species Act 
is that we put it on uh, in the news, that we put this in front of people so they understand the kind of situation we're in, uh, what the risks of loss might be, and the, the costs of doing nothing uh, or continuing business as usual. And I just want to stick with you for a second here, Keith, because I know you have some experience with this. Is is the Endangered Species Act a helpful conservation tool, or is it, are there other means? Just what does the ESA bring to the table? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so uh, the modern version, or t today's version of the Endangered Species Act was adopted in 1973. Uh, and prior to that, there were other versions, other iterations of this act uh, that um, they did a lot of things, but primarily uh, prohibited trade in products of these species uh, that were considered severely at risk. The 1973 version added very species-specific and in particular habitat-specific protections, which we feel are really critical to the survival of species because, uh, as you can imagine, uh, if there's no place for a particular species to live, it, it's not going to survive. The Endangered Species Act has been critically important tool uh, in conserving species that are at risk, probably for two reasons, right? One is uh, that listing decisions, that the decision to extend protections of the act to a particular species have to be based on best available science. That provision in the law has made sure that what we're talking about when we have a dialogue about, about the situation of a particular species are not based on economics, they're not based on personal preferences, but just on the science of the probability of survival or extinction of a species. The second important provision in the Endangered Species Act that's made it very successful is the prohibition on take in Section 9 of the Endangered Species Act, uh, which prohibits the killing, harming, harassing, uh, or taking of a species, uh, particularly where that would affect the ability of the species to survive. Claire, kicking it over to you, and then Keith, if you'd weigh in as well, is what did you ask for in this particular petition? So we asked for the American bumblebee to be to receive endangered species status. Under the Endangered Species Act, there are two separate categories that an animal or species can attain. There's threatened and endangered. And endangered means that this species really is at the brink of its population ability. We're almost at that extinction level and it's critical that we take immediate action to make sure that this particular animal or species has the resources necessary to continue to survive. And hopefully we can work towards repopulating that particular species in that area, its, it's traditional areas that it would originally inhabit. What, what we asked for was the maximum protection that's afforded under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and it's important to understand that this is the beginning of a process, right? Um, what we've done is we sounded the alarm and now fish and wildlife and the uh, interested public uh, can weigh in to determine uh, what that status might be uh, and, and what protections might be afforded. But what we've done is put together a, a very persuasive body of evidence that documents the decline of the species, uh, the reasons for the decline, uh, the possibility or likelihood of recovery without intervention and the need for intervention by fish and wildlife under the Endangered Species Act. Do you think this petition will be successful? I do. Certainly, uh, you know, there are examples of successful petitions for insects, uh, pollinators in particular in the past, such as the uh, rusty patched bumblebee, uh, which is another pollinator that's been in steep decline. 
But I have to say that the, the students um, and uh, the Center for Biological Diversity got together uh, and really put together a persuasive case for listing under the Endangered Species Act, uh, well documented in the science, uh, supported by the law, and paved a path right forward for to try to think very realistically about how to help this species recover. So I think it's an excellent candidate for protection. Claire, coming back over to you, we were just mentioning the student success and the student work on this project. What was the experience of working on this kind of project from your point of view, from a student point of view? It was fascinating. So often during class, we feel a little removed from the actual practice of law. So being able to participate in something that really does put you in the position of working as an attorney, working as a lawyer, and knowing that the work that you're doing is going towards protecting a species that deserves protection really puts a whole new emphasis on the importance of the work that you're doing and also the building blocks that we're learning at school. I also want to point out that I hopped onto this project really at the tail end of it just this past summer. Uh, Professor Hirakawa's environmental law class almost two years ago started working on this petition uh, in the spring of 2019. So this was a labor intensive process and being able to participate was fantastic, even even just for the, you know, the past almost year that I was working on it. And Keith, you mentioned the Center for Biological Diversity, who we partnered with as Albany Law School on this project. How did that partnership come to be? The Center for Biological Diversity monitors just about everything that goes through fish and wildlife uh, in the National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, they saw our petition and uh, thought that it was worthwhile. Uh, they had been thinking about doing it on their own. And so they reached out to partner with us and lend some of their scientific expertise and legal expertise on the process. And uh, we, we partnered up and uh, exchanged a lot of ideas, uh, different drafts of how to go about this, debated over some of the science uh, to put this together uh, and complete the petition. Okay, now that's kind of the mechanics. That's the how this all came to pass. But I want to get into the why, the reasons why we made all this effort, two years worth of effort here. And Claire, just want to start with you on the first one here is why did you file this one with U.S. Fish and Wildlife? So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services has jurisdiction over the I think, terrestrial animals. That was the only agency that we could file with to really make sure that this was put into the right place. It's, it's certainly, as most government applications are, there are a lot of rules and regulations to follow, and we really just wanted to make sure we were putting this one through by the book. And Keith, same to you. Uh, why U.S. Fish and Wildlife? Uh, well, as Claire said, I mean, Fish and Wildlife is the agency that has the authority and really sort of the power in this area, these decisions about uh, how we interact with these species. But uh, what's I think really important here to recognize is the rate of extinction of species uh, since humans have really made a mark on the planet has increased. There are different opinions anywhere from a thousand uh, to 10,000 times uh, the natural rate of species extinction on the planet. Humans are having a pretty significant impact on uh, how the planet operates uh, internally. Um, but given the increased rate, most scientists, or at least many scientists, feel that we're in the middle of, an, of a mass extinction period that is going to lead to pretty devastating effects. Um, stepping up, completing this petition, and sounding the alarm over this pollinator uh, recognizes the importance that this uh, insect plays, um, not just to human well-being, but to all life on the planet. 
couple of years back, I think it was about 15 years ago, a study was done to try to value what we call ecosystem services uh, from bees. On an annual basis, uh, they estimated a little over uh, $3 billion that these bees contribute to our agricultural products just in America alone. It's essential to have all of the component parts that make life work. And American bumblebees, which used to be uh, an incredibly common uh, bee and even in just insect in general uh, in the United States has declined uh, so much uh, that it's certainly hard to find. If you take a look at the petition, you'll see in many states, particularly ones across uh, the northern United States, the decline has been as much as 99% of historic populations. Uh, we're finding them in the south, uh, but, but not where they have historically been. The decline has been significant uh, to the point that we're worried whether they will be around at all. Just as a general note, it's worth understanding that when you lose species on such a grand scale as this, uh, the ability of nature to, to maintain a system in which humans can flourish and even live becomes very difficult. We start thinking about uh, artificial pollination and artificial natural systems just to survive. And this is the situation we're coming to. So hopefully uh, what happens here uh, from the Albany Law students, the efforts and really professionalism that they put into this project picks up some speed and we see a lot more uh, members of the public and different kinds of uh, student organizations and even special interests uh, looking for uh, need like the students did here. Claire, wanted to kick one back to you. Why the American bumblebee? I mean, bugs are gross. Nobody likes bugs, right? Uh, so why the American bumblebee? Why should it itself be on the ESA? Well, I think if you're looking for a bugs is gross person, you asked the wrong student at Albany Law School. <laughs> um, the as, as Professor Hirakawa talked about, when you're looking at the ecosystem of the planet and you remove a single building block from that, it's like the worst game of Jenga that you have ever played. And the American bumblebee, bumblebees in general, pollinators, yeah, they buzz. A lot of people don't like them, but they do provide a crucial, crucial part of that food system. They're not only food for local birds, but they're also responsible for, for pollinating a lot of the local flowers, local plants that provide habitat, provide food, provide just beauty to our landscape, which is a, you know, an ecosystem service that should not be overlooked, that it's just beautiful to look at our nature. But also they are responsible for pollinating our food. They're responsible for pollinating the majority of Northeastern agricultural centers. And if you lose the largest pollinator, as Professor Hirakawa said, with a 99% decline in the Northeast, and they have almost completely vanished from the state of New York in general, you're really losing out on, on a linchpin that, that cannot be replaced. And if you do start to think about artificial pollination, you know, human beings as a species, we have a mixed record when it comes to us getting involved in nature's processes. Sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. And it's one of those things where mother nature has designed this particular process to work really, really well. And if we have an opportunity to preserve that natural instinct of those bees and to preserve that particular function, we should work to do that. And Claire, just wanted to ask a follow-up there. I know it's covered in the petition, but I just want to get it here on the podcast as well, is why is the American bumblebee struggling so much? 
So this particular bee's habitat has really started to be in decline. Uh, when you look at deforestation, you look at urbanization, and then you start to look at climate change as well, the habitat that the bee has lived in for the past several thousand, hundreds of thousands of years in this particular area just does not exist anymore. When you don't have a food source, you know, if human beings lived in an area where we didn't have a food source, we would probably need to move on. And bumblebees are no different. When they do not have their appropriate food source to sustain their numbers, they're going to have to change their particular habitat. They're going to become climate change immigrants in a certain instance. They're going to have to move their location to find what they need. And that's, that's what's happening with the bumblebee. And that's what's happening with, as Professor Hirakawa said, an unbelievable amount of other animals as we are potentially in the midst of a mass extinction event. Why should lawyers and law students be involved in protecting the American bumblebee in this case? Isn't this something that government should be doing on its own? Why should we be involved? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, so there's some literature out there talking about you know, when something is presented to the public as, as incredibly important, uh, instead of acting, folks tend to retract and retreat a little bit with this notion that the government has taken care of it. Um, that's not always the case. Certainly, we have dedicated professionals in the Department of Fish and Wildlife whose main concern uh, is to make sure that we have a livable planet. Uh, but, you know, with the idea that government can't do everything, the Endangered Species Act was designed uh, not just to have uh, government-initiated petitions for listing, but also um, uh, members from the public and interested groups. Anyone under the Endangered Species Act can petition the federal government uh, to list uh, an endangered species. One reason is because the law says we can, uh, but the other reason is uh, because this is exactly the kind of thing uh, that we're training folks to do and sort of being good stewards and citizens uh, of the planet is to intervene where our, say, hasty decisions to uh, make profits and gains off the land development uh, have come at a cost. And we have the Endangered Species Act to be a check on that, uh, to try to manage those costs and make sure that we, we step in before things get to a point where they're unrecoverable. Everybody should be involved in preserving species. Uh, it would be great if it was before they declined to the point where they're eligible for listing under the Endangered Species Act, uh, but certainly once they're there, uh, I feel that it's our responsibility uh, to make sure we're protecting not just ourselves, but everything around us. Why should law students be involved in this process? I think it's, it's interesting that law students specifically were interested in, in filing a petition like this. And it's, it's being focused around the participation of the law students. I mean, we're citizens of the world. Yes, everyone is able to file a petition under the Endangered Species Act, but it is very challenging to follow all of the rules appropriately. And law students are particularly well suited to making sure that we can move through that process successfully so that our petitions are looked at and viewed and we have a higher chance of success. I think the question really is, should more law students be involved in this? We have that particular ability to, to work towards protecting the planet that we inhabit, and I think it's a privilege to be able to be involved. Okay, so the American bumblebee, we're doing a lot of work for that particular species, but I, I did want to look forward a little bit after the petition has been filed here, which it was at the beginning of the month. What changes do you think will happen if the petition is successful? Does it, everything just end if the bees put on the list? Boy, wouldn't that be great. 
So like I said before, the petition is the beginning of the process. The process that we're now engaged in uh, allows the Department of Fish and Wildlife some time to uh, survey the evidence that was uh, submitted to determine whether there's sufficient amount of evidence. And then the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife has to determine whether the petition for listing of the species could be warranted or not warranted or warranted but precluded. So this is a determination that has to be made. If the determination is warranted, then we have some time uh, of public comment and participation to, to make that call, give some comments to Fish and Wildlife as they consider the significance of the evidence of decline, uh, the likelihood of recovery uh, during the foreseeable future to determine whether to finally list that species. Once that's over, that just means that the species is entitled to protection, right? What protection the species ends up getting is a different ballgame entirely. Under the Endangered Species Act, uh, the federal government has duties under Section 7 to prevent placing the species in jeopardy. And wherever a federal action uh, might influence or affect that species, the federal agency has to consult with Fish and Wildlife to determine the best course of action. In addition, Section 9, as we discussed, talks about uh, the take, the pro prohibition on take of a species. And all this is, is well and good, but of course, what we'll be uh, thinking about at that point uh, is enforcement. Right? How do we implement uh, the protection within the critical habitat of these species? Uh, what other actions can we use to synthesize a better uh, recovery path for the species? And how do we enforce the prohibition of take against uh, people that do not, uh, that their interests don't align with the protection of the species? The listing, what it does is it, it, it sets a system of law that now can be applied to protect the species, and it has to be enforced after that. So this is a long-term game for us. Uh, we're thinking about steps in the process, hopefully that will get the species into a position where we won't consider listing anymore. Claire, next one's for you. Beyond getting the protections that we've been speaking about here, what can be done to help the American bumblebee recover? Well, I think first and foremost, stop hating the bees and insects in your local garden, even <laughs> if you don't particularly like them. But really, this is probably going to sound quite basic, but their habitat is is being destroyed. So the best thing that we can do is an individual's recreate habitat. The Cornell Cooperative Extension has a wonderful program where they offer seed packets that provide native and non-native plants that are available for you to plant in your garden, large, small potted plants on your porch, whatever space available that you have to just add more habitat for these particular for these particular bees to live in. It's one of the simplest and easiest and prettiest ways that you can contribute to the fight against climate change and species degradation. And we'll find a link to that and have that in the show notes here. Keith, is there anything that you want to add of helping this American bumblebee beyond the litigation, the, the petition that we're working on right now? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I think in addition to what uh, Claire identified, replant, right, native vegetation uh, and recreate habitat for the bumblebee. You know, there are some personal actions that you can take that will help all endangered species, in fact, uh, habitats and ecosystems alike. And one of them, or maybe there's just a list here, know what endangered species uh, uh, reside in your area, right? Educate yourself, understand what's going on and, and, and uh, so that you can avoid actions that uh, would be damaging to listed species. 
certainly engage in protection of wildlife as a responsibility for all of us. Avoid plastics, reduce your footprint, and make your home a safe space, right? Not just for people, uh, but in a way that uh, doesn't have such negative impacts uh, beyond the walls of your home. Um, these are, you know, the, the kinds of actions of, of um, living within an environment instead of against it uh, will benefit the survival of all species. And again, we'll have the list as best as we can find them in the show notes for this episode. And Claire, I know you're focused on this last semester of law school, but I did want to take a look into the future here a little bit. What are some of the other projects that students are working on in environmental law here at Albany Law School? So the Environmental Law Society really has had, we had a tough go of it with COVID. Not to, not to take the easy way out, but we had a number of on-campus initiatives that we were hoping to put forth this year that unfortunately had to be backburnered because of COVID. But we are looking into increasing recycling on campus. We'd love to have a local compost pile as well or work with a local composting association to make sure that our food waste is not actually going to waste. We also work with the um, Wolf Conservation Center in Salem, New York. We have adopted a three-year-old red wolf, which unfortunately does not mean that she gets to come home with us and play in our backyards. Um, But we do sponsor her at the Wolf Conservation Center, which is phenomenal. If If you're not aware and the listeners are not aware, the Wolf Conservation Center breeds gray and red wolves, neither of which are actually native to upstate New York, but they do it in a way where there's very limited human contact. With the exception of a yearly checkup, the majority of the wolves never see another human being during their time at the center. And once these particular packs are strong enough, they're re-released into their natural habitat. For the red wolves, that's southwestern America, northern Mexico. For the gray wolves, that's the upper Midwest. You know, you're looking at um, Montana, Minnesota, those areas. So it's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal organization, and we're really happy to be able to partner with them for sustainable reintroduction reintroduction of these species that you know have otherwise been really substantially obliterated from their native habitats. So those are those are our, our ongoing projects right now. And and in Professor Hirakawa's environmental law class, we're also working on potentially drafting some legislation. We're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like. It's just wonderful to be able to have all of these different opportunities. Albany Law School is really good at incorporating experience into the educational process. Uh, We have pretty amazing clinics and experiential education uh, programs here. In our environmental law classes, which include local environmental law, federal environmental law, uh, land use, uh, among others, natural resources as well, We try to take on projects and get into the community, uh, touch the dirt, and see what's going on outside the walls of the law school. Uh, In the past, we have put together presentations for town and city councils, uh, for planning commissions to, uh, you know, encourage them to adopt green building ordinances and smart growth techniques for new development. Uh, We've worked with nonprofits uh, and helped them think about how to inventory our natural resources uh, locally, uh, so we can think about uh, what is there for protection, how to maximize our relationship uh, with local environments. Uh, As Claire pointed out, uh, this semester we're taking on a a pretty interesting project uh, where the students are thinking about rights of First Nation. And what they're doing right now is trying to, uh, you know, get into the research to understand the risks to First Nations, to space and place, uh, heritage, culture, artifacts, 
and um, you know, to, to understand how that's relevant to what they're studying in environmental law, which right off the bat, uh, things that we are identifying as uh, priorities include uh, recognition right, of, uh, of others, uh, trust building, uh, and the importance of sovereignty of First Nations um, in a pretty complicated state and federal system. The direction is to see what we can design in terms of legislation uh, that will uh, help help to uh, protect these values right, of First Nations uh, against different types of development, excavation, uh, pollution of waterways, degradation of hunting and fishing areas, uh, destruction of land, and importantly, appropriation of culture. So the project uh, is, in, is intended to identify opportunities where the law students can establish new protections, right? And to do that, they're going to draft and propose new legislation to accomplish that. Okay, it's time for the lightning round. Are we ready for the lightning round? We're never ready for the lightning round. I'm always ready for the lightning round. <laughs> okay, here we go. And we do try and have a little more fun here in the lightning round. Start with Keith on our first one, then we'll go to Claire. What is the most interesting thing you've seen or learned in environmental law here at Albany Law School? Keith, you've been here for a while. So these bees, we got wolves, we're working with First Nations. What's the most interesting thing you've seen or seen or heard about? Yeah, so to me, the most interesting thing about environmental law uh, is the way that these competing constructs of nature are constantly in battle in these laws. When you think about, you know, nature is wild and threatening that, that folks want to protect themselves against versus nature is fragile and in need of protection, such as in the Endangered Species Act, or nature as resources for human appropriation versus nature uh, as pristine and to be left alone. You know, one of the things that we, we work on pretty hard, and Claire has, has been very engaged in this as well, is try to figure out how these constructs should, should work in the law, which of them should be prioritized, which of them gives us a better view of the environment uh, in which we reside. Claire, how about you? You've been through the environmental law ringer, so to speak, here at Albany Law School. What's the most interesting thing you've, you've been a part of? The most interesting thing is actually a theory called shifting baselines, which I actually learned about last year. And it's this idea that the, the climate and your environment, as you put pressure on it, your environment's going to shift and change and move and, and it, you can push it to the brink. But once that pressure has been released, it will start to come back to its center. But a lot like a rubber band that's been stretched too many times, it will never come back to exactly where it was when you started. So it's sort of like that story where your great, great grandfather used to be able to catch fish, you know, out of the local pond out back that were 15 feet long. And then your great grandfather had 10 footers and, and now down to you and you catch a minnow and you're super excited about it. So it's this idea that as, as you move through history and you move through time and you see the impact of, of human existence on your local environment and that nothing's ever going to come back to exactly where it was. And I just, I found the idea of that that fascinating because you do really view the world as you are and you see the world as you exist in it and you have that time capsule of your life and everyone has that particular experience and that that can start to limit your ability to view the world as a as a changing existence that's really been through a lot of different phases and I, I just think it's fascinating. Okay, now we're still in the lightning round here, and this is a fan favorite that is back. The pick one. So we're going to give you a, an option of one or two things, and then you got to pick one. Here we go. 
Keith, rope swing or diving board? Rope swing. Claire, rope swing or diving board? Rope swing, always. Okay, okay. Two nothing on that one. All right, Claire, you're up first on the next one. Speedboat or canoe? Oh, canoe, absolutely. Keith. Canoe, human power, baby. <laughs> I just don't, I, I'm always afraid of being on any boat. I'm not, I'm not a big swimmer, <laughs> so. Well, let's go Keith on the next one here. Umbrella or, you know what, I'm just going to get wet. Get wet. Claire. We got we to gotta be in touch with all the things around us. <laughs> Claire, what do you think? I say get wet, but only because umbrellas just never work the way that they ought to and it's too frustrating for me to even bother with <laughs> I, I will take the contrary position here i just can't stand being wet it's like when i ever i, have, I bring extra socks when i walk in on rainy days at the law school because i cannot stand being wet <laughs> last one here we always end the show on this question we'll start with keith is there anything you'd like to say to the albany law school community Hopefully, folks are taking a good look at what the environmental law students are doing. Um, what they're doing is building their competency. It's recognizing that these laws that are out there uh, can be very effective tools. You know, we, we um, have law students, to, they're there to learn sort of how law works and what it is. Uh, but it's not until they get out in the rain without an umbrella and get wet and touch the dirt and walk uh, out and see what the impact of these laws might be, uh, that they're really gaining confidence. And so I do encourage all of our law students uh, and all law students, the entire community, to, to engage, right? to engage in how the, this law works, uh, to see what it can accomplish, especially in your hands right? as a future or practicing attorney. Claire, is there anything you'd like to say to the Albany Law School community? I have to dovetail off Professor Hirakawa. Getting involved is something that you hear so often, especially as a 1L, that it's so important to do and it's so important to explore. And especially your first year, that feels so overwhelming that you can barely even imagine where you'd find the time. But it really is the most impactful part of the experience that I've had here at Albany Law. I never would have imagined that I would work on a bumblebee petition when I first started law school or adopt a red wolf or, you know, be a research assistant and, and work with the professors at Albany Law who are just prolific writers. I mean, they just can't seem to stop writing. You know, I've had the opportunity to work on textbook manuals and, and edit law review articles and be a participant in a book publication. And it's just, none of that would have been possible if I hadn't put my foot in the door and said, hey, I'm happy to help. What do you need? And I, and I realize how cliche that sounds, but I cannot emphasize it enough. It's so, so, so important. And that to me really is where you gain the experience that, that matters, where you gain really the core of, of, of your environmental education. Thank you both so much for coming on the Albion Law School podcast. Thank you, Thank Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having us.